Great. Okay. My goal today is to get from, please. My goal today is to get from the partition where we left off last week all the way to the first intifada in 1987. Um, it's unlikely that I will do so, but that is the goal. Um, if you have questions, this is complicated stuff, please feel free to ask it. I know I said last time not to, but I'll be a little less harsh. Um, so when my uncle Rob and I often teach this, we try to break this, the, the conflict up into three different periods. The Zionist movement, which is what we talked about uh, last week, um, and then the Israeli-Arab wars, and then the Israeli occupation. Um, so we talked about this last week. We're now transitioning into this area, and we're going to get just over into this area today, hopefully. But last time uh, I talked about the rise of political Zionism in, um, in Western Europe and the uh, massive, uh, massive scale immigration that began happening from the persecution in Europe before the Holocaust, uh, the uh, political movement that was given voice by Theodore Herzl, uh, talking about whether we should go to Argentina or Palestine, the formation of the World Zionist Congress that decided on Palestine, the immigration to Palestine, the, the beginning of the tensions between the immigrating Jews and the indigenous Arabs as the, um, the immigrants, especially in the early 1900s, began buying up land from the Ottomans and denying work to the Arabs who were living there. So the tensions started to build. Uh, we talked about the King Crane Commission, the survey by the United States government that went over and looked at kind of public opinion uh, in this area and wrote back saying, we recommend that the Zionist program be significantly limited, that we went over with minds predisposed in favor of Zionism, but what we actually saw there changed our minds about this back in 1919. We talked about how the American government set on that because it wouldn't kind of wouldn't vibe with uh, public opinion at the time. Uh, we then talked about the World War I, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, how the British government um, took over and ran, ran the Mandate of Palestine, uh, how um, they tried in a couple of attempts to figure out how to partition the land. Do we restrict Jewish immigration? What do we do? Nothing was working. Uh, Jews began to retaliate against the British government, began blowing up uh, hotels. We talked about the King David Hotel, blowing up railway um, uh, tracks and, uh, and armories and targeting officials, all kinds of stuff. And how the beginning of terrorism, what we would call terrorism in Israel and Palestine, was actually started by the Zionist Jewish paramilitaries, not by the Palestinians. Now, Palestinians continue that kind of tradition, and we'll talk about that probably next week is where we're going to get to that. But it starts with the Zionist paramilitaries. So we got right up to the place where, um, uh, in 1947, where the Holocaust has happened. It has increased Jewish immigration significantly. Remember, all this immigration was happening before the Holocaust. A lot of people think, well, the reason why there was a push for, for an Israeli state is because of the Holocaust. No, uh, it happened before then. Why the state of Israel existed in 1948 is in large part due to the Holocaust. Why it happened when it happened in terms of 1948, the creation of a state. But in terms of why Jews began immigrating out of Europe to uh, come to Palestine, it was not because of the Holocaust initially. It was because of persecution. So, in 1947, the Holocaust has happened, it's increased Jewish immigration, and so Britain says, we're done, we're pulling out, can't handle this anymore, and they tell the United Nations, it's all your problem. Y'all figure it out. And so uh, the UN um, issues a resolution called 181 in November of 1947. And what they did was they divided the land again into an Israeli state and an Arab state. What you see in light color here would belong to the Jewish state. It would be in a Jewish state, not an Israeli state. Um, so the Jewish state would be in light color here and what's in dark would go to the Arab state. 
with a little pocket here of Haifa and a little pocket here of Tel Aviv. I don't know if you can tell. It's very interesting that they're going to create a state like that. Um, and then the uh, area around Jerusalem and Bethlehem would be international area. Neither the Jews nor the Arabs would have control over it. So they passed that and called Resolution 181 in November. Now the vote tally went through as uh, 33 yeses and 13 noes. The United States was part of the yes. All of the Arab states were in the noes. And look at Great Britain. They abstained. They didn't even want to vote on it, right? They were so tired of the whole thing. They're just like, we're not even going to voice an opinion about this. We're done. <coughs> So, um, the resolution passes. Um, here's where the problem came in primarily for the Arab population, is that this partition gives over half the land, 55% of the land, to the Jewish minority. At that time, the Jews made up 37% of the population, but they got 55% of the land. It's a problem if you're an indigenous Arab who felt like the land was yours. So at the time, this 37% of the population only owned 7% of the land. There were 500,000 Jews, uh, in, in what became, let me rephrase, in what became the Jewish state in this territory, 500,000 Jews and 400,000 Arabs. So even though the Arabs overall outnumbered the Jews in the land, overnight they became a minority population in the Jewish state, the way the boundaries were drawn. You see that? So some of you might say, uh, well, yes, the Jews got 55% of the land, but the Negev is pretty much uninhabitable, right? I'm seeing some nods. Well, real quick about that. What about the Negev? Originally, it was earmarked for the Jews. That was going to be Jewish land. Then the U.S. State Department said, well, it's uninhabitable. We should make sure the Arabs get it. And they began to frantically lobby for Arab control. One of the Zionist leaders, a guy named Chaim Weizmann, personally intervenes with Truman and says, no, we absolutely want the Negev. Give us the Negev and we'll trade Beersheba, which is a, um, it's now in the state of Israel, and this strip right here along the Sinai. So the Jews were willing to give that up and give up the city of Beersheba if they could have the Negev. One more comment about the Negev. Even though it's largely uninhabitable to European Jews coming from Europe, those who did live mm -hmm. there were Arab-speaking, indigenous Palestinian Bedouins, the nomadic tribes who lived there. So there were people living there. They just happened to be Arabs who were accustomed to living in the desert. Yep. And basically, uh, this quote from Ben-Gurion essentially says, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he basically says, it's unacceptable for there to be that much real estate that is not inhabited by Jews and that is not cultivated. So if we don't get it, then uh, we must expel Arabs and take their place. Up till now, all our aspirations have assumed there's enough room in the land, but if we are compelled to use force, not in order to dispossess, our force will enable us to do so. This line always confuses me because just up here he says, we'll expel them and take their place. And then he says, we'll use force, but not to dispossess. I'm not exactly sure what he means by that, but so just to say that when we look at that and say, okay, I know you're saying 55% of the land went to the Jewish minority, but they got the negative. Well, they got the negative because they specifically lobbied for it, right? That wasn't just uh, a raw end of the deal. They asked for that. Continuing on. So, um, as we said, the Holocaust in a large part is what brings about this partition plan in 1947. It speeds it up due to Jewish immigration uh, as people are fleeing Europe, and it speeds it up because there's a lot of pressure on the international community, the United States in particular, who turned back a whole bunch of Jews that tried to sail into America, sent them back to Europe, and a lot of them died. There's a guilt that happens from that, and so there's this desire to try and assist the Jews in creating this homeland. And so uh, this partition plan passes. The question uh, arises, is this fair to Palestinians? Should the Holocaust have meant that, they that 400,000 of them become a minority in a Jewish state? This is a, a Palestinian author. Palestinians failed to see why they should be made to pay for the Holocaust. They failed to see why it was not fair for the Jews to be a minority in a, uni in a unitary Palestinian state. 
While it was fair for almost half the Palestinian population, the indigenous majority, uh, majority on its own ancestral soil to be converted overnight into a minority under alien rule. Right? So why couldn't we just have a Palestinian state and let the Jews be a minority? Why did we have to divide this up and give part of the land to a Jewish state wherein we become the minority? How is that fair? We, didn't, we weren't responsible for the Holocaust. We weren't the ones who sent people to the gas chambers. We weren't the ones who rounded people up. Why are we paying for it? Right? That's a question that Palestinians begin asking and still ask today. Alan Dershowitz, who's a very famous uh, lawyer, he wrote a book called The Case for Israel. I'm sure some of you may have read it. Uh, he says, the de decision to partition Palestine into Jewish and Arab states was not a reflection of discredited colonialism or imperialism. Rather, it was among the first examples of the new self-determination that President Woodrow Wilson and many other progressives had championed. So he says, look, we should be lifting this up as a great feat in the development of human history. This is one of our first examples of self-determination. So then if we look at actually what the self-determination clause says from Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, the settlement of every question whether of territory or, or sovereignty, it should say, or sovereignty, of economic arrangement or of political relationship should be upon the basis of free acceptance of that settlement by the people immediately concerned and not upon the basis of the material interest or advantage of any other nation or people. Well, the Palestinians would look at that and say, yeah, we pretty unequivocally said no. <laughs> so I'm not sure how this fits into our self-determination. Self how is this an act of self-determination if we are people who are fairly immediately concerned and we said absolutely not? So it's a question that they would raise. Another issue that they would have, yes? Was there actually a country called Palestine, or what country was this a part of? So uh, th there's never been a nation state known as the state of Palestine until 2012, when the United Nations recognized that there is a state of Palestine in the West Bank and in Gaza, and the Vatican recognized it last year, I believe. So um, until then, essentially, there's not been a recognized state of Palestine. It was known, uh, I mean, from 1514 to 1914, or 1517 to 1917, it was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Then the Brit uh, British government took over, and it was known as the British Mandate of Palestine. So it's called the Palestinian Mandate, the British Mandate of Palestine. The coins at that time say Palestine on them. So there was, there's always been a place known as Palestine. But in terms of like, was in the way that United States of America is a state, has there been a Palestinian state like that? No. There also hasn't been an Israeli state until 1948, right? Every state starts somewhere. Um, yep, a couple questions there. Sovereignty. Great, thank you. Sovereign, yeah. Go ahead. Forty-four, forty-five, I guess. Yeah. End of the war. So, in forty-seven is when they pretty much had already settled. Who had already settled? Like the these people, these Jewish people in this land. Because you use forty-seven, it almost seems like you're saying the Holocaust went to forty-seven. No, no, no. The the Holocaust is from. Where was everybody going between the end of the war and the establishment of the state? Yeah, people are still, they're immigrating to Israel. There's a huge number that come during the war. And then after the war ends, they still are coming. And immigration is increasing over that time. They're not all coming to Palestine. Some are trying to go to the U.S. Some are going to Russia. Some are going to South America. They're spreading out. But a lot are still coming to Palestine. So, no, the Holocaust doesn't go to 47. It ends 44, 45. But people are still leaving Europe. Europe's clearly not safe. Um, oh, yeah, Absolutely. A lot of refugee camps in Europe. Um, it's the pressure of the post-World War II immigration that is height, heightening the tension as Mike was talking about. At the end of the war, as so many people are trying to leave Europe in the aftermath of the Holocaust and move to 
historic Palestine, there's the rising tension for the British to deal with these immigrants and with the increasing uh, uh, resistance on the part of the Arab population to, to the influx of more Jews. Yeah. Yep. And when a lot of the Jews have been displaced personally at first time with the Nazis, all across Europe in different ways, Absolutely. And what's very interesting is that that exact same thing happens to the Palestinians in just a second. Exact same thing. And that's where we're going to go right now. If we'll look at the map, one of the reasons, uh, other than the fact that majority of the land was being given to the minority population, another reason why Palestinians, um, and they're beginning to call themselves Palestinians at this time and not just Arabs, one reason why they're not in favor of this partition is what do you know? Look at the land that's given to the Jews, primarily in this area, and look at it over on the map. What do you notice about that area? It's way more green. Way more green. So, not only did the minority population get most of the land, they got the better land. Right? It's a problem for the people who were living there before. It's a big problem. So, May 14, 1948, the British mandate in Palestine officially ends midnight on the 14th, and, uh, and the Zionists declare the establishment of the State of Israel under Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. Um, I have it kind of penciled in here because that's essentially what the United States does. The United States recognizes the State of Israel within 13 minutes of their declaration, the first country to do so, and they had the statement already, they just didn't know what the state was going to be called. So once it was announced, they penciled in Israel, and then they made their official statement. The very next day, May 14th, Israel uh, exists, pops on the world scene. The next day, surrounding Arab nations attack Israel and begin what Israel calls the War of Independence and what the Palestinians refer to as the Al-Nakba, which means the catastrophe in Arabic. It's the same language that's used about the Holocaust. In Hebrew, the word Holocaust is Shoah, which means catastrophe. And uh, in Arabic, Al-Nakba refers to uh, what happens to the Palestinians. And what happened to them, we're going to talk about in just a second. But the end scenario results in 750,000 refugees. 750,000 Palestinians who are either driven out of their homes or who flee in fear. Okay? And we're going to keep going and talk about that. How did Israel build up an army capable of doing that that fast? Well, they'd be, I mean, they've been coming. I, I don't know the specific answer to that. But, I mean, they've been coming for 40, 50 years um, and uh, have been developing these paramilitaries over the last, especially the last decade, and their campaigns against the, the British government. How they, how they managed to build an army like that, I'm not sure. I haven't dug into the military history that way. I can, yeah, they, um, the one thing was those paramilitaries were very critical to that because they did have people who knew how to use weapons and could, you know, could stand up to a large military force because I think it was something like six or seven Arab countries attacked Israel mm -hmm. simultaneously within, I think, 24 hours of the, right. the declaration of the State of Israel. And it was only because Israel pulled back to a major defensive position and was able to shorten their lines of communication and supply hold out long enough for other nations to send weapons and equipment to their forces and then they eventually pushed back and drove the invading Arab armies out. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to look here uh, and we're going to talk more about what happened in the War of Independence in just a second. Um, 
19, this is some of the, a map to show how the borders change. Before the partition plan in 47, what you see here in the 1946 map, what's in dark is land that was inhabited, uh, not necessarily owned, because a lot of it was owned by the Ottoman Empire, but was inhabited, farmed, um, lived in by the Palestinians. 47 partition plan happens, you can see the land gets, uh, it shrinks, and so you have the emergence of what becomes a Jewish state. Then the war happens in 1948, and at the end of the war, Israel has conquered more land. This is before the Geneva Conventions happen, where it says you cannot take land, that you can't keep land that's acquired during a war. Right? That happens in the late 40s, early 50s, says that if you take land during a war, you have to give it back. We can't redraw our borders anymore. This is before then. So Israel conquered a lot of land, and so they ended up, um, you can see what they conquered up here. They conquered this area, what's in gray here, and all of this land, so that at the end of the war, they controlled everything that's in white. And the, the uh, Palestinian Arabs um, were reduced to this population, which ended up being controlled by Jordan and by uh, Egypt. All the black dots that you see here are Palestinian villages that were depopulated between 1948 and 1967. Okay, these were villages lived in by Palestinian Arabs who then no longer lived there at the end of the war, or between the 20 years between the 1948 war and the 1967 war, which we may get to today. Michael, go back just a minute. This, this is a fact that, that I, I want to settle deep inside all of us, because I did not grow up hearing this story. This is a part of history that we understand very well now, and this is not open to debate. There is solid historical evidence that these 500 plus villages existed, were inhabited by Palestinians and no longer exist. They've either been bulldozed or they, the homes were taken over and are inhabited by uh, Israelis, but they no longer exist. There's an app that you can get for your iPhone that tour guides have that's tied into the GPS system so that when you're traveling around Israel, your app will tell you that you're now at the site of a Palestinian village and it will give you the name of the village, the population of the village, and what happened to the villagers and which refugee camp they went to. So we know for a fact that these 500 plus villages were depopulated and destroyed as a result of the 1948 war with 750,000 refugees. And that's just something that, that was lost on me growing up, not a story that we heard. Went over here and then we'll come back. Wasn't part of the depopulation the evacuation of Palestinians during that war, and they just could never come back. And yeah. some was a forced depopulation. Yes, so Michael will talk about that. There was violence used to scare them out. Some were forced out. There were massacres that he's going to discuss, and there were folks who fled and just were simply not allowed to come back. Uh, this period of time between the 40s and the 60s, um, who are those Palestinians? I mean, is it just tribes that are being wiped out? I mean, I assume that they're not a certain religious. They're mostly Muslim, although there's a much larger Christian minority at this time than there is presently. But they are indigenous, Arab-speaking, um, native peoples. And again, the definition of an Arab is someone who speaks Arabic, right? That's, that's the accepted international anthropologic definition of an Arab is someone who speaks Arabic. So you have Turk, Turkish Arabs, Egyptian Arabs, Saudi Arabs, Lebanese Arabs, Syrian Arabs. They're not all the same people. The Palestinians were somewhat unique, and we can talk about that later, about why the Palestinians were not easily accepted into the rest of the Arab world. They're, they're better educated, they were more affluent at the time, they, they were a greater Christian minority, they were more secular, they were not as, as uh, religious or right-wing as much of the rest of the Arab world. So the Palestinians were a very specific people, they just weren't a nation state. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now the Prime Minister, said back in 2000 that there's a consensus in the governing circles of the West, friendly and unfriendly alike, uh, is that the, the pinhead-sized Jewish states, very small Jewish state, would instantly be overrun by the Arabs, and Western military stra uh, strategists concurred. In other words, um, the fear was essentially a second Holocaust is coming. We have to defend ourselves at all costs because we're going to be overrun by Arabs and there's no way that we can win this, right? We're going to be completely outnumbered. We're going to be overrun. The question then emerges, did the Zionist leaders actually anticipate annihilation? Did they really think that another Holocaust was coming, that another genocide was coming? The answer in terms of my research is this. Publicly, yes, that is what they said. Privately, no, they didn't believe that. Here's a letter from David Ben-Gurion to the foreign minister at the time in 1948. If we will receive in time the arms we have already purchased, that military aid coming in, and maybe even some of the pro that promised to us by the UN, we will not only be able to defend ourselves, but also to take over Palestine as a whole. I am in no doubt of this. We can face all the Arab forces. This is not a mystical belief, but a cold, rational calculation based on practical examination. But publicly, a lot of the speeches were around the idea that an annihilation is coming and we have to defend ourselves against another invasion the way that the Nazis tried to kill us all. That was the rhetoric out loud. Privately, Ben-Gurion saying, we got it. And if luck's on our side, we'll take all of the land. We'll be able to take the whole of Palestine. So, then the question also arises, okay, so yes, 750,000 Palestinians were driven out or fled from their homes. There are a lot of refugees, I get that. But isn't that just the tragic consequence of a war, which, by the way, the Arabs started? It's part of Israel's argument. Refugees shouldn't be able to come back. You started the war. You don't get to start a war and then complain that some people had to leave, all right? So is this true? Weren't the Palestinian refugees just the tragic consequence of war, which the Arabs started? To answer that, we have to go back before the 1948 war. What happened before the War of Independence? This is crucial, absolutely crucial, and my guess is most of us have never heard this. There were some skirmishes that followed the UN vote, November 1947. They vote on partition, Resolution 181, some skirmishes arise. Some say it was the Zionist forces on defensive, violence, retaliation, whatever else happens, there are skirmishes. What ends up happening in March 1948, the Zionist paramilitaries finalized what they call the Plan D Offensive. This is well documented. What ended up happening, every 50 years, Israel has to release their military archives. So in the 90s, um, they released their, the first set of military archives. And when they did, the historians of Israel realized they had been telling the story very, very incorrectly. And they started rewriting the history. They're called the new historians in Israel. Um, what they began to tell uh, was a story of essentially ethnic cleansing and intentional uh, uh, attempts to drive out the Palestinian population to make it um, uh, inhabitable for the Jews. Clear the land. That's what they're saying the military archives indicate. One, one uh, author in particular, a guy named Elon Pape, Israeli-born Jew, uh, University of Haifa, was a professor of history. He wrote a book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, where he looked at the military archives that were released and rewrote the history. He received so many death threats for rewriting that history that he had to move, and he now lives in England and teaches at the University of Exeter. That was part of the atmosphere. It's what happens when we start questioning stories that we believe are gospel, right? Get very nervous. It threatens the whole foundation of our existence often. And that's what was happening in Israel. That these military archives came out and people said, we've been telling the story wrong. So what was the story that they realized was true? Zionist paramilitaries finalized what's called the Plan D Offensive. 
And what they started doing is in March 30, uh, they began clearing the coastal regions. You remember in the partition plan, there was Haifa that was earmarked for the Arabs and Tel Aviv as well. No longer. Those are cleared at the end of March, beginning of April. All the Arabs are, are cleared out of that area. One, one uh, operation in particular is called Operation Nakshon, and they go into, it's one of the most famous, so why I'm mentioning it. They go into a, um, a, a Palestinian town just outside of Jerusalem called Deir Yassin, and they round up most of the inhabitants and murder 93 of them, bury them in a mass grave. At the time, the, the contemporary accounts that the paramilitaries were announcing were that 254 were dead. And the reports are that they were riding in their military vehicles through the surrounding towns, shouting on the loudspeaker how many they had killed in Deir Yassin. So people started fleeing in terror. There's a document from Albert Einstein at the time condemning this. Right? Einstein uh, addressed this at the time, just said, this is absolutely unacceptable. This is not what it means to be a Jew. So March 30th and into April, this is uh, April the 7th, they begin clearing the land. Note this, between March 30th and May 15th, so between March 30th and the day that the first Arab soldiers invade, 200 villages had already been cleared, and between January and May of that year, before Israel exists, nearly 200,000 people had already been displaced. Question? Can you comment on the, the world view? Does the world realize this is going on like all the other America, South, you know, France? I mean, what is their response to this? That's a great question. I'm not sure what the public view is in terms of what's leading up to it. I think once the war starts, most people, I think, kind of took the position that Israel took, which is refugees happen during the war. Um, what the perception was before the war, I'm not sure in terms, of, uh, in terms of public view, but I can look that up. Question back there? It's hard to hear you, I'm sorry. Right. For sure, yeah. I mean, Israel is the, what, the fifth or sixth, I think, largest military in the world. They're in the top ten. They're backed by the most powerful military in the world, the United States. It's very hard to counter that. It's very hard to counter it. Um, yeah. Can we come back to that? Let me that's a, a challenging question, and I don't know if I can answer it accurately. Let me come back to that at the end. Let Michael well, finish up. Well, we're at the end. We have one minute left, unfortunately. So I'm sorry. We we okay. Go ahead. Grand Mufti uh, is an unfortunate figure. Um, he, uh, he was one of the leaders of Jerusalem, an Arab leader of Jerusalem, and was fairly active in persecution of the Jews at that time. Absolutely. There's been an uh, insinuation from Benjamin Netanyahu that um, the Grand Mufti was, um, was a participant in the Holocaust, that he was complicit in the Holocaust. I haven't dug into that to see whether or not you're saying he was. Yeah, so... Right, yeah. So, there... 
Was there persecution of the Jews in Europe? Yes. Were there, was there persecution of Jews by the Grand Mufti in Jerusalem? Yes. But we still have to deal with, we still have to deal with all this, right? Um, and so I've got, I'm sorry, I've just got like 30 seconds left. Um, let me see what I can cover. So let me just say this. Um, we're looking at this, we're saying, okay, this is fairly shocking. 200,000 people are already displaced by the start of the war. Is that just an accident? Um, was that intentional? So let me just throw about four quotes at you really quickly to, to uh, address this. Again, we'll remember uh, Herzl saying in 1897, we're going to spirit the penniless population across the border we'll, through economic means. We have Ben-Gurion following the, the first uh, partition plan in 1937 saying, after we constitute a large force following the establishment of the Jewish state, we'll just cancel the partition and we'll expand to the whole of Palestine or handle land of Israel. He also said in 1937, I support compulsory transfer. I do not see in it anything immoral. The Arabs will have to go, but one needs an opportune moment for making it happen, such as a war, which is what happens. Joseph Weitz, he is, and says this in 1940, he is a member of the Jewish Agency Executive and involved in what were called the transfer committees, right? Their actual committee set up called the transfer committees. He says, between ourselves, it must be clear, there is no room for both peoples together in this country. The only solution is a Palestine, at least a Western one, without Arabs, and there's no other way than to transfer the Arabs from here so that not one village and not one tribe should be left. Ben-Gurion says again in 1956, why should the, is one of my favorite quotes, why should the Arabs make peace? If I was an Arab leader, I would never make terms with Israel. That is natural. We've taken their country. Sure, God promised it to us, but what does that matter to them? They only see one thing. We have come here and stolen their country. Why should they accept that? So the war ends in 1949, uh, which we'll have to come back to, but the point being that what happened in 1948 with what the Palestinians called the Al-Nakba, the clearing of the villages, the ethnic cleansing, is entirely consistent, I would wager, with the rhetoric from the Zionist leadership from the start of the Zionist movement. It wasn't an accident. They knew that they were going to have to do that. At first, the idea was let's do it through economics, deny them employment on our side of the border, offer them employment on the other side. Then the strategy changed. Ben-Gurion says at one point, we're going to have to start speaking a different language, he said. And the strategy changed, and they said the only way we're going to be able to do what we want is we're going to have to drive them out. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. We're out of time. You got real, real quick thing? Let me just say one thing real quick. I know some of you may need to get up and leave as we're talking, but I think it's very important as you wrestle with this that you remember what Michael and Rob said at the start of the class, and that is there is a narrative with which we are all familiar in the United States. Uh, we know that. We grew up with it. We were taught that in school. And there is a truth to that narrative. There is another story that most of us have not heard. And that's the intent of this summer, is to bring that other story alongside so that you have both of those stories to listen to and to compare. And to understand that, yes, there were many indigenous people who were opposed to the Jews, who did not want the Jews coming for a variety of reasons. But by and large, you have a nomadic tribal people who are not organized into a national government. He did not elect the Grand Mufti democratically. These are, these are leaders imposed by the Ottoman Empire. So you have a people who are living here in land that's been theirs for hundreds of years, and Europeans come and take their land. And that's the basic issue. That's the basic issue. And those Europeans do that under this divine mandate that God gave them this land. But for the people who live there, they don't, that doesn't matter. We're deciding modern geopolitical controversies based on a people's interpretation of an ancient religious text that much of the world does not accept as authoritative. So there's a huge struggle here. And it's supported by the United States because historically, as the United States has become more conservative, we've accepted that 
view of this ancient religious text that Rob's going to challenge in the next few weeks. So I just want to, you to keep that in mind about what's happening here with all these people who've lived here for hundreds of years. We know people who can trace their family back seven and 800 years in Palestine. European Jews come and take their land. That's the, that's the struggle that Michael's describing today. Thank you all. We'll see you next week. Safe travels.